This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today I'm speaking with Orly Clerget about her new book, The New Noir, Race, Identity, and Diaspora in Black Suburbia. Welcome to the show, Orly. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about you and how the book came about. Sure. Well, I am an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California, Davis, I am interested in larger questions around culture, space, and migration. I'm an urban sociologist, and much of my work examines the experiences of Black people from across the diaspora. So the new noir is about the Black middle class uh, in New York and reflects both personal and intellectual interests, which I've had for some time. I currently live in Sacramento, California. But I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York, and as a Brooklynite, I really had a front row seat to the diversity of Black cultural life. This happened at home. My parents are first-generation immigrants from Haiti, and I'm the youngest of six children and the only person in my family to have been born in the United States. I also learned this diversity um, within my community. As I say in the book, I woke up to the sounds of Haitian Copa in the morning. Uh, we had dinner to the sounds of uh, reggae um, in the background, and hip-hop put us to bed at night. Therefore, I thought it would be a really interesting exploration to see how the myriad of nationality groups that make up Black New York, how exactly they were influencing cultural life outside of the city in hidden and forgotten suburban settings. The New Noir came about similar to how most first academic books emerge as a new and improved version of my dissertation. And my dissertation was based on two, a two-sided ethnography of Black suburbs in New York. And in the book, I reveal a couple of things. First, many researchers and policymakers have written about the issues facing the post-civil rights era Black American middle class. However, we have little information about how different types of regional and nationality groups that exist within Black America negotiate cultural and racial identities. Second, I explore what Black cultural life is like across different suburban settings. So many Americans continue to think that Black people reside solely in urban areas and cities. However, more Black people reside in the suburbs than ever before. And the suburbs are increasingly becoming important places to explore questions of culture and politics in Black America. So the rise of this kind of diasporic Black middle class was shaped by 
a collection of events that happened in the 1960s. I'll, I'll talk about two of them. The first was civil rights legislation that barred racial discrimination in housing, education, and in voting. And the second factor was the liberal immigration policy of the 1960s that ushered an unprecedented number of Black people from the Caribbean into New York, who over time joined Black Americans in middle-class working and living spaces. So with this kind of context in mind, the question which drives the book is, what are the cultural identities of Black diaspora groups who live in and encounter one another in middle-class suburbs of New York? You focus on two New York suburbs, Cascades and Great Park. Can you set the stage and tell us about those two locations, as well as talk about the methodology for your study? Definitely. Um, I did a multi-sided ethnography of Cascades, which is located in Queens, New York, and Great Park, which is located on Long Island, over the course of several years. Historically, when we talk about Black New Yorkers, we uh, explore neighborhoods like Harlem and Bedside. And of course, there's this very rich history in these urban neighborhoods. However, more Black people reside in the suburbs than in the city. Therefore, the suburbs are the present and the future of Black residential life. This is interesting since 100 years ago, Black people were leaving the South, departing from their rural roots and becoming an urban people in the, in the 1910s and the 1920s. And this kind of demographic shift gave way to the epic cultural movement we know of as the Harlem Renaissance and the New Negro movement, which inspired the title of, of my book. They were part of the process called the Great Migration, or what acclaimed author Isabel Wilkerson calls the first step America's servant class took without asking. So by the 2000s, Black geography had largely expanded from cities to the suburbs. Therefore, places like Queens and Long Island need to be added to what sociologists Marcus Hunter and Zandria Robinson call the Black map of American life in their book, Chocolate Cities. As Black incomes grew in the 90s and gentrification and displacement ramped up in the 2000s in historically Black neighborhoods across the country, the suburbs attracted many more Black families to them who were really seeking a better quality of life than what the city was providing. I followed this migration flow to suburbia and, and really ventured into areas of Queens and Long Island that Black middle-class residents had turned into what historian Andrew Weiss calls places of their own. For those who may not be familiar with New York geography, New York consists of five boroughs, which constitute New York City proper. Those are Brooklyn, Manhattan, the Bronx, Staten Island, and Queens, where I did my research. Directly east of Queens are the suburbs of Long Island. Long Island consists of two counties, Nassau and Suffolk, and Cascades and Great Park are, are the names I've given to these places in Queens and Long Island in order to protect the privacy of my interviewees. So I zeroed in on Cascades and Great Park because they are two of the 400 middle-class suburbs where multinational Black communities have formed in the United States. And Cascades demographically is predominantly Black. It's a multinational middle-class community. And Great Park was a uh, multiracial community. Cascades had a median household income of $70,000, and Great Park had a median household income of $81,000, which really put them in this middle-class kind of category. 
I spent two and a half years doing ethnographic research in these neighborhoods. I wrote up six descriptions based on observations of the local cultural life of these neighborhood settings. And these six descriptions were complemented by 60 in-depth interviews with three groups, Black Americans, Haitians, and Jamaicans, as well as 35 interviews were collected with business leaders and community leaders in these settings. In your book, you say diaspora is a verb. Can you explain the other important concepts and frameworks that emerge in your study? Sure, I can talk about two of them. So in the book, I cite the brilliant Dr. Yaba Blay, hashtag cite Black women. She states that, quote, diaspora is a verb. So we must physically see and feel what Blackness means in the world. And in order to do this, we must understand that diaspora is not simply a descriptive characteristic of a people in motion or a people who have left their places of origin and and reside elsewhere, right? Diasporas are a people who were forcefully extracted, pushed out of uh, their homelands due to political and economic subjugation. The after effects of this kind of rupture are articulated and mediated by their ongoing dialogue with the places they call home, but were forced to leave because of issues of colonialism and racially violent anti-Black systems. This dialogue with the places they call home are articulated, I argue in the book, um, in my interviewees' everyday identities, practices, their everyday cultural negotiation. Therefore, I refer to the Black middle class as diasporic. So I demonstrate how the suburban identities of Black American, Haitian, and Jamaican immigrants are shaped by three important factors. The first is the colonial and post-colonial legacies of the places from which they have come. Second is the racial and class histories of the suburban landscapes that they inherit when they move to Queens and Long Island, and their interactions and encounters across race, nationality, and class. I take care, great care in the book to theoretically decipher Black Americans, Haitians, and Jamaicans through a diasporic lens, and I do this for a couple of reasons. The first reason is because Black Americans are a distinct group with very unique cultural characteristics and migration histories in the United States. Regionality, for example, is a very important boundary in Black American identity formation. Second, I disaggregate Black immigrants and move beyond the West Indian category. I explore the distinct experiences of Jamaican immigrants and Haitian immigrants who bring their languages and cultures and citizenship politics and patterns of mobility with them on their journeys to New York City and its middle-class suburbs. Another concept which I challenge in the book is the age-old assimilationist framework. I evoke the work of scholars who are seeking to quote, decolonized sociology, like Julian Goh, and dethrone assimilation theory, like Vilna Bashi Lair, by pointing to the colonial origins of assimilationist thought. Often when Black immigrants are in conversation with Black Americans in our sociological uh, literature, these studies portray Black immigrants as a model minority or a sort of, quote, Black success story, often flattening, villainizing, and erasing the humanity of Black Americans. And in my book, I instead highlight the cultural and political contributions of Black Americans and Black immigrants to New York and in the U.S. and elucidate, really, what they teach us about race and progress. History is an important pillar in your book and your findings. I was hoping you could tell us more about The Break. 
The adults I interviewed are a part of the generation of Black people who came of age in the post-break period. So the break is a term that was coined by sociologist Howard Wynott in his book, The World is a Ghetto. And the break period is a time frame between 1945 and 1970, when on a global scale, white supremacy was challenged by international anti-racist and anti-colonial resistance movements. So we're thinking of things like the civil rights movement or the calls for independence by colonized nations via pan-Africanism. This time period led to an unprecedented number of black and brown migrations from the American South and the global South to northern metropoles and Western societies. So the adults I interviewed came into adulthood after 1970, therefore after uh, the end of the break period. The Black American middle class that emerged after the 1960s has been referred to as the post-King generation by sociologist Mary Patillo or the post-integration generation. This perspective makes sense when the Black middle class is understood as consisting of the children and grandchildren of the civil rights movement, the direct descendants of slavery and, and, and Jim Crow in the United States. However, in order to understand the identities and practices of Black middle class New Yorkers today, a more global and comparative perspective is required because this allows us to see the interrelated international racial histories, migrations, and situations of the Black middle class. This means that New York's Black middle class cannot be fully understood without engaging with the complicated social hierarchies of the U.S. South and the global South, from which they have, deep root, they have come and they have very deep roots. The racial caste system of Charleston, South Carolina, for example, or the uneven industrialization of Kingston, Jamaica, or the dictatorship politics of Port-au-Prince, Haiti, are not separate events, but are interrelated global processes that have shaped the experiences and perspectives of my interviewees in, in very profound ways. So in other words, the multinational composition of the Black middle class in New York requires that we see their migrations and movement into suburbia through the particular ways in which the regions and nations to which they belong structured and articulated global white supremacy. So for African-Americans during the break period between 1945 and 1970, in the U.S., Black people's active resistance was expressed in the movement of millions from the Jim Crow South to the North and West. Black Americans' exodus was the most important population redistribution in, in American history, what we know of as the Great Migration. At the same time, Black people in Jamaica and Haiti also set their sights on the North Star, right? And these kind of northern cities like New York and, and Boston, um, Baltimore, uh, and Chicago. But they did so under very different political conditions. As Black Americans were demanding liberation from the terror, uh, terror of segregation and, and lynching in the U.S., Black and brown Jamaicans were demanding freedom from the British Empire's uh, hold over the politics and the economy of, 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 that, of that island nation. They gained independence in the 1960s, but many Black Jamaicans were left behind in, in rural and urban poverty in that kind of post-colonial moment. Many Jamaicans fled to New York only to find backbreaking work and ongoing desegregation crises and Black people from other regions and nations with the same goals and difficulties. And during the break period, Haiti was also embroiled in political problems. There was uh, this ongoing dictatorship 
the Duvalier dictatorship, whose violence and, and repression between the late 50s to the mid-1980s sent thousands and thousands of people from every class strata into exile, into New York and to Miami and to Paris and, and to Montreal. The fall of the dictatorship in 1986 led to free democratic elections and amidst U.S. imperial control and continued popular resistance, political instability truly crippled the economy. Therefore, Haitians fled the country, but actively tried to maintain connections with those they had left behind on, on the island. Therefore, the break framework helps us understand the Black middle class in the following ways. First, my respondents were people whose lives, migrations, and unlikely encounters in global cities like New York emerge from interconnected national and cross-national political events, <laughs> such as the downfall of empires, dictatorships, and, and Jim Crow. And second, the post-break paradigm helps us to recognize that suburbs where Black diasporas meet and mix have experienced significant socioeconomic, cultural, and political changes over time that impact their sense of belonging in these suburban spaces. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You say in your book, the Cascades and Great Park that were inherited by the diasporic middle class were created in Jim Crow fashion. Can you tell us more? Definitely, yes. Uh, Cascades and Great Park have a, a large number of Black families from across the diaspora who reside in them, right? However, these suburbs did not always have such a large Black presence. Cascades and Great Park saw an influx of Black families only in the in the 70s and in the 80s when both the mandate to desegregate schools and the 1968 Fair Housing Act barred racial discrimination in housing. More and more Black families saw opportunities to leave Harlem, to leave the South Bronx and Central Brooklyn during this time period so that they could raise families in things like larger homes, homes that have backyards. They could find parking spaces for their cars, right? Um, they, they could move to quieter neighborhoods uh, that had tree-lined streets. So this marked really a new era of Black geography in New York. The sorted, the very sorted uh, racial history of Long Island suburbs reveals that it was created in Jim Crow fashion. These suburbs catered to the residential needs and desires of whites and white adjacent groups such as Irish, Italian, Jewish, and Polish immigrants and their descendants in the post-war moment. So Long Island is fundamentally the home of the, the, the first Jim Crow suburb in America, a suburb we know of as Levittown. Levittown was built in 1947 and had racially restrictive covenants that excluded Blacks from buying homes there. The homes for sale in Levittown were for white buyers only. Levittown both architecturally and politically became the model for suburbs built throughout the country. So Cascades and Great Park were designed with the same separate and unequal code. When desegregation of housing and schools came down the pipeline in the 1960s, whites responded to this mandate first with violence, 
So, for example, the bombing of, of the homes of Black families who were moving into white neighborhoods were regular occurrences uh, in Queens and Long Island. When whites could no longer inflict terror on Black families who were moving into predominantly white neighborhoods, they exited to the suburbs or to other suburbs in large number. Many moved to racially exclusive suburban towns on Long Island. Others moved upstate. Others left New York altogether and moved to Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut, or Massachusetts. Therefore, the Black Diasporic families who are living in Cascades and Great Park, they are really inheriting this very violent history of not only racial segregation, but also desegregation. And it's had an impact on an array of institutions in these places. Additionally, the Black middle class in New York has also been subjected to what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. My interviewees had a lot to say about the state-sanctioned harassment and brutality that they experienced, that their families experienced, that their communities experienced when interacting with the New York Police Department. So as New York's former mayor, Michael Bloomberg, is running for president and he's learned quickly how much he needs the quote-unquote black vote, whatever that means, he is said to be on this kind of apology tour for the racist stop-and-frisk policy he supported while mayor of New York City. I explain in the book that Black families in urban as well as suburban New York were wrestling with the front lines of this mass incarceration reality as they traveled to work and school every day. Bloomberg was seen as being very much out of touch with the experiences of the Black New Yorkers that I interviewed, but also instrumental in their targeting. Furthermore, the meeting of punitive drug laws and immigration enforcement impacted the foreign-born families that I spoke to because they, they were caught in what we call the crimmigration system. Some of them had family members who had been detained and deported back to the Caribbean, um, so, yes, the suburbs were created in Jim Crow fashion, but in this post-civil rights moment, the new Jim Crow was a mechanism that contained, terrorized, and, and curtailed the advancement of Black, poor, working class, as well as middle class people in New York. One of the powerful aspects of qualitative research is that we can meet people. Can you tell us about Sarai, Athard, and Tammy and what they represent in your study? Absolutely. Yes, in my book, you do get to meet people. Thank you for pointing that out. It was my greatest joy to actually tell the stories of my interviewees who were very, very giving of their own personal narratives and experiences. In some ways, the writing process felt like the sociological version of Humans of New York. And for those of you who don't know what Humans of New York is, uh, it's a blog quote about New York City, one story at a time. They feature the stories of everyday New Yorkers, ordinary people who have extraordinary experiences. One of the more exciting aspects of writing the New Noir for me was exploring Black New York, which demographically hovers around 2.8 million people, uh, one story at a time. And in the chapter, which I call Talalu, I outline the journeys of three interviewees, Sarai, Otod, and Tammy the middle-class suburbs. So Sarai, Otoda, and Tammy's life histories really point to the diverse experiences of the Black middle class today. Their narratives also show that Cascades and Great Park are quintessential crossroads for Black people from different regions and, and nations. 
they arrived in New York for a multitude of reasons, and they occupied varying positions in the city's political economy. So first, Sarai is a Black mom, a Black mother and wife who lives in Great Park, and she actually grew up on Long Island. She's a financial manager, and during the time of our interview, Sarai was the sole earner in her household. Her husband had actually lost his job during the Great Recession. She was one of the first Black children in the 1970s to desegregate her white suburban school, and her experiences since then have been colored by this racially tumultuous childhood experience. Otod, on the other hand, is a Haitian immigrant, and he works for the government. Uh, He resides in Cascades with his wife and children. They live in a two-family home that they share with relatives. He was born in Haiti, and uh, he actually arrived in Brooklyn in his teenage years. And upon arrival, he learned English. Over time, he earned his degrees in local state schools. And he noted that taking care of family in Haiti financially was a very important aspect of his everyday life. And Tammy, on the other hand, she is a Jamaican immigrant who lives in Cascades with her husband and children. Tammy arrived in the U.S. in her young adulthood. While in Jamaica, she had a very good job as a nurse, she said. However, when her husband began having this very strong desire to leave the country because of growing political instability and drug-related violence, they applied for visas and and, and they left the country. So Sarai, Otod, and Tammy's stories illustrate the array of motivations and factors that shape their migrations and that of the post-break Black middle class suburbia. And they're very different yet interconnected positions um, within this overall dynamic. And in the rest of the chapter, I use demographic and ethnographic data to elucidate the cultural economies of the post-break Black middle class with these kinds of stories and narratives pushing forward the chapter. You explore social mobility and complex class positions in your book. What do you think your findings say for our greater understanding of social stratification as sociology scholars and researchers, and especially by nationality? I am exploring the lives of middle class people in America. However, how we define the middle class is a very contested issue, right? Um, And this is even more so the case after the Great Recession. So in my study, in order to be considered middle class, residents had to make at least $70,000. They had to have completed at least some college and have owned their homes for a significant period of time. So these measures really helped me gauge if a family was able to lead at least a lower middle class lifestyle in New York, which, as we know, is one of the most expensive cities to live in in the United States. However, because I was collecting data during the financially devastating Great Recession and foreclosure crisis, I began to think about the everyday signs of economic problems these families were facing. Across the river, the 99% movement protesters were occupying Wall Street. Queens and Long Island had some of the highest foreclosure rates in the nation. Therefore, deciphering middle-classness became a really tricky issue while I was in the field. Because I was collecting the life histories of my respondents, however, I was able to write about their class identities, not only during one time period, the time period in which I was interviewing them, but really over the life course. Because many of my respondents were migrants themselves or the children of migrants, their understandings of class and status also were informed by their experiences across space, for example. 
So they would take into account the class stratification systems and the places from which they came or perhaps their parents were from, but also in, in, in the U.S., but also abroad. Right? How are they thinking about stratification systems in, in Haiti and, and Jamaica vis-a-vis what they're experiencing in New York? Therefore, class origins matter, and their journeys to middle-class suburbs matter, is what I argue in the book. The beauty of meeting people is also learning the intricate life stories around how they grew up and arrived at the middle class. So I explored if they, for example, grew up in poverty. Um, did they have uh, working class upbringings or did they come from middle class or elite households? I also accounted for the income and earning fluctuations which happen across one's lifetime as they move from one geographical location to another and from one life stage to the next. I then compared these origins and, and journeys over the life course and compared that to their current middle class status. So when examining migrants, this is particularly salient as my respondents' self-identities around class were really shaped by growing up either as a part of the urban working class in Jamaica, or they might have been from the suburban bourgeoisie in Haiti, or the uh, urban middle class in Virginia. Therefore, the suburbs are places where people of heterogeneous class origins are encountering one another and making sense of what it means to be middle class in these suburban settings in light of the places from which they have come. Food comes up a lot in your book. Can you explain the significance? How Black people come to know and understand and interact with each other in suburbia, I found, is really expressed through cultural norms. And and nothing signals a group's kind of shared beliefs and practices more than food, which is a necessity of life. Therefore, you know, the book is not necessarily about food, right? But food really provides an entree into the quotidian cultural identities and politics of the Black middle class diasporas that I explore in the book. Ethnographically, food is really a site of memory, a site of consciousness, and, and community across borders. And many of my understandings of the identities and the cultures of the people whose lives really fill the pages of the book arose around food. So I interview people as they prepare dinner. I spent hours frequenting local restaurants and watching kind of cross-ethnic inter- interactions within them. I also sat at kitchen tables conducting interviews while food was cooking or cooling in the back, background of my uh, interviewee's homes. So that means that the foodways of the Black diaspora really served as these kinds of portals into the issues that were important to the families I spoke to. So I used food, foods of the African diaspora as a sort of metaphor for the complex identity work that they did in their daily lives. You end your book with a take-home plate. What do you want readers and listeners today to take away from your book? Great question. In the new noir, I zero in on the experiences of Black Americans, Haitians, and Jamaicans, right? But I did this because they are the largest nationality group in the United States, Black nationality groups in the U.S., but they were also the communities which I had built a research relationship with while I was in the field. That said, first... I want to also recognize that there are many other communities whose experiences of migration, of mobility, and suburbanization matter a great deal and are just as sociologically important as the ones that I studied. 
So, for example, immigrants from other Black Caribbean countries, such as, but not limited to, Barbados, Trinidad, Panama, Guyana, Puerto Rico, and the Dominican Republic, are really making significant contributions to the cultural geography of suburbs. African immigrants from Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Ghana, for example, too, are are growing in significant number in the United States. Nigerian immigrants in particular are highly educated and they hold a strong place in Black middle-class spaces and shape the identity politics that happen in those places. On Jamaica Avenue in Queens, for example, you will find small shops selling many Nigerian products the most popular of which are Nollywood movies. And this, I think, really demonstrates both the residential settlement of Nigerian immigrants in these areas, as well as the businesses created to cater to their consumption needs. Also, secondly, something else I'd like readers to take away after reading the book is that the questions which I explore around race and racism, migration, citizenship, and and cultural belonging in the book are are not unique to the United States, but they are pressing issues globally. In African, European, Asian societies, migration, urbanization, and suburbanization are reshaping nation states and communities and are highly contested political issues. The local, regional, and international Black migrations that created Black diasporic suburbs in New York are one part of a larger reality of cross-national population movements in response to rising global economic inequality, state policies, and everyday social exclusion on the basis of race, class, gender, religion, religion, and sexuality. So, for example, in the Parisian suburbs of France, or what are called banlieues, large numbers of African and Arab immigrants reside there. This phenomenon is a part of a a very long colonial and post-colonial history between France and um, um, and various African countries. And these banlieues are are segregated settings, and its residents have unequal access to the opportunities which French citizenship promises to provide. Therefore, Although the French preferred not to talk about race, France's structural racism is articulated very clearly through its urban and suburban inequalities in ways that I believe are both similar and different to the patterns of segregation we see in America's major cities, particularly New York. Today, I've been talking with Orly Clergé about her new book, The New Noir, Race, Identity, and Diaspora in Black Suburbia. So what are you working on now? Working on a couple of projects, I'm currently working on a book manuscript, which is the second installation of, of the New Noir, where I will be writing about the experiences of Black millennials, young Black suburbanites who are the children of the adults who were in who were featured in the New Noir. And in that book, I would like to outline the kind of racial and class identities that these young people are negotiating in everyday life in Queens and and Long Island, and also really give this preview to the pre-Black Lives Matter movement. How exactly were young people perceiving their prospects and their aspirations in light of the election of President Obama? Um, who was uh, elected in, in 2008, and it was he was really the first president that they they came to know as, as they came of age. 
but to also be growing up during the period of the Great Recession, where there was significant economic precarity all around them. How exactly were they thinking about issues of racial progress and their futures in that kind of context? Another project that I'm working on is related to gentrification and displacement in New York and California. Really uh, would like to follow many of the anti-displacement movements that have come about in the past several years in response to the increased economic and housing inequality that that's been taking place in Brooklyn, New York, and Sacramento, California, as well as in Oakland, California. So those are a couple of things that I'm working on. Thanks again for being with us today. Thank you so much, Sarah. 